talking about you got this and you got that and you gonna murder this one and murder that one talking all that bullshit i'm gonna put it to you like this yo this is for the nerds this is for the brainiacs this is what we deserve go ahead and play it back you ain't gonna touch me you're not gonna do nothing you are not above me i bet you wish you was me i know it i know What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Only Friends podcast. Uh, we got a juicy one today, guys. We have a very special guest, Mr. Olympia, six times over Dorian Yates. Uh, he's going to be coming in in about 10 minutes or so. Prior to that, just want to catch up on some news and notes, as we usually do. We also have an in-studio guest, Mr. Craig Tapscott. You guys might recognize him from poker.org, uh, many, many, many articles. And then we have Landon, the space cadet, uh, rocket man, Tice. His pants are cool, man. I was going to say something about your hoodie yesterday, uh -huh. but then the comments got it for me. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look, the hoodie was, you know what it is? It's the purple. The purple's jarring. The purple is, uh, it's, it's a lot to take in, you know? It just looks like you're, you're into some shit. I don't see it, man. I'm not wrong. I'm I'm not wrong. Uh, Craig, you did commentary on yesterday's stream. I did. Is that accurate? No, not or two not days on ago the, on the industry stream. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Two days ago. Uh, how did that all go? It was fun. I was a little nervous. Nikki made me feel at home. Okay, I've that's good. Background in entertainment and uh, theater and things like that, but I've never commented. A little scared, you know. I understand. A nervous. Yeah, do might do something wrong. So mm, that's how I feel every time every I play day. on stream. That's how I feel about <laughs> just playing in general. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you got whacked last night. Oh, small. Okay, but it was a good game. A lot of fun. Uh, it's it's definitely interesting when you're playing versus friends that are also very good, and it's the weird in between of if you just kind of show up and play differently versus like what you say you do. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a little bit of a difference, right? Where it's like being the theory guy and think like taking a game plan of I'm not going to bluff today because they think I'm going to. Yeah. Well, we watched you giggle your way through a uh, three-street bluff against Foxen that wasn't ever going to work. <laughs> yeah, he had an ace and a jack. Unlucky. Yeah, you might be in the muck for this one. We'll probably we'll probably have to cover this hand tomorrow. Yeah, it's a good one. A <laughs> uh, little little wide pre, I stand think. Stand-up game. I mean, oh, 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 man, that makes stand it so much worse. Stand-up game, he would had a chip. Oh, okay. But it was progressive, right? No, not yet. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, well... Whatever. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Because How are you going to be the one to tell me that I'm too wide? That's crazy. <laughs> this is crazy talk. Do as I say, not as I do, young man. <laughs> I actually uh, got wrecked where I opened 4-3 uh, in the cutoff where I thought the stand-up game was on, mm -hmm. and it wasn't on. Oh, right. So then I just get like the ace, queen, four, backdoor, and yeah. get check-raised by the plant, and he just has fours. Well, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, I would have folded pre if I knew the stand-up game wasn't sure, on. Sure, but now All here we are. All these carnival games. Now here we are. Add straddles and the buy-ins. 3K cap, 3K cap now, so if you're playing 10 quarter 50, you have 60 bigs. Yeah, that's dumb. Whatever, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Here we are. For another day. <laughs> uh, Craig, why don't you let us uh, know a little bit of how you and Dorian came to know one another? Well, in 92, I was training Gold Gym Venice, and he was always something that uh, you wanted to follow and watch. He uh, just an amazing person mentally, physically, spiritually. And he came to Gold's Venice, and he met... He was going to train with Mike Menser. The okay. guys out there doing Mike. Mike was heavy duty. He, you know, Dar uh, Arnold talked about doing like 12, 15 sets for biceps. Mm. So when Dorian worked with Mike, 
when you work with Dorian, you might do five sets at the most of biceps. It was all about rest and recovery. Mm -hmm. So I just met him briefly and I was intrigued by that concept and I just read everything. I was involved in bodybuilding and sport nutrition and in New York. And then we met again years later when he asked me to help work with his company here in the US. Okay. Uh, you say you were involved in bodybuilding, like actually competing or you were no, just... No, no, look at me. I'm not competing. Come I'm, on. I'm, <laughs> Don't judge. It was a long time ago. 92 is a long no, time ago. No, <laughs> it was. I was huge in 92. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, uh, I was just always looking for things to improve myself, my body, mind, spirit. Mm. I was attracted to the sport that way. And then moving to New York to pursue acting and directing, I fell in love with Gold's Gym Venice. It's just like a happening place. You could have a sitcom there. Yeah. Crazy shit's happening. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So I just was always seeking the best information, the truth about how to improve my performance in every way. Love it. All right, let's, uh, let's bring in the special guest. So for those of you guys who may not be familiar with uh, bodybuilding competition, Mr. Olympia is the biggest competition every single year. Dorian Yates won the competition six straight times from 92 to 97. He's given credit for revolutionizing the sport. Uh, he came in with what was dubbed granite hardness. So he was able to put on a level of mass that had never been seen before. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dorian Yates. Welcome, sir. How'd you do? What's up, man? Thanks We're for having great. me on. Thanks for being here. This is uh <laughs> this is a big get for us. You know, we don't we don't have guys of your magnitude just come and slum it with a bunch of poker players too often. So we really appreciate you guys taking the time. I'm sure it'll be, be interesting. Maybe I'll learn some, something about poker. That you, not, <laughs> you're not going to learn anything <laughs> here, but we're going to learn a lot from you. That I can, that I can assure you. Dorian, uh, Matt's doing 75 hard compared to your 360 hard. Right. So let's talk about that. Uh, I mean, I to like, be... I like the idea of guys making money playing, playing a card, card game. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be cool, man. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a easy way to make a hard no it's a hard way to make an easy living exactly. let's 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 put it that way <laughs> easy <one>. um <laughs> i like the idea of being able to pick up a bunch of weights and makes money too so you know you're kind of living out my dream in a in a different sort of way yeah i guess uh that was my dream you know i i didn't uh ever foresee myself um working a normal job or working for some somebody else and uh I love training and I love lifting, lifting weights. So it was amazing that I was able to turn that into a whole, uh, a whole career, you know? Yeah. Um, that's interesting to me. T talk to me a little bit about it. Cause I can share that sentiment. I, at a very young age, you know, in kindergarten when they're going around the room saying, what would you like to be when you grow up? Yeah. I just had nothing. I was like, I didn't <laughs> want to work a nine to five. I knew that. So at what point did you uh, realize that, you know, maybe lifting weights and putting on size, making yourself a bit of a show pony, if you will, was a viable career path? Um, I suppose, you know, mid to late teens, I got introduced to weight training. The, the first thing that I was fascinated with was martial arts. And, you know, Bruce Lee, early 70s, Bruce Lee was, was massive. I had the posters on the wall and... I used to do push-ups in my room and squats and uh, I did some karate and uh, all that stuff. And I think around that time, then I was introduced to the weights and I saw some magazines, which were from the States, Joe Weider's uh, magazines, um, which, you know, is probably hundreds of thousands of 
males around the world that had the same experience that picked up one of these magazines that Joe Weider published and saw the guys in there, saw the physique, saw the, the lifestyle that was being projected and um, kind of fell in love with it. And, and I saw that people were actually doing that. They were actually um, competing in bodybuilding competitions and living that lifestyle and making a living doing it. So um, obviously that's a long way off when you're, when you're a kid, but it was a possibility that sparked something in my mind. And uh, that, along with the general feeling, well, it wasn't the general feeling, it was a, quite a strong feeling that I was not destined for the normal life. I was not destined to stay in the town I was born in. I was destined for something much bigger and and I could see it and I couldn't understand why other people were kind of like satisfied with, you know, the regular yeah. kind of life. So that, that was there. And then when I actually started training, then it clicked that this is what it was. And I didn't know exactly how it's going to work, but I knew it was going to work. And the first income I got was, I won British Championship. Didn't get any money for that, but it it gave me it gave me a title, and then somebody backed me with some money to open a gym. And then I was running a gym and training in the gym and uh, making a living from that. So that was great in itself. But then there was a possibility there to make an even better living as a professional bodybuilder, and that really. I think financially that really kind of exploded in the in the in the 90s where the 70s there probably wasn't much money around guys had to have a regular job or something else as well on top uh 80s the money started to come in so there were full-time professional bodybuilders um but the 90s the whole thing kind of exploded more um more companies involved so the industry getting bigger and and uh publishing there was no internet at that time so there was a lot of money in publishing mm -hmm. and uh more money became available not to the level of you know big sports but uh uh you could make a decent living if you were in the top uh, you know 20 in the world i guess yeah talk talk me through that process a little bit like um you know when you were when you started training for that first competition you went out and won the british title and then you moved into owning your own gym how much of that like kind of set in stone that you were capable of putting on the mass or that you had the genetic makeup that could potentially allow you to be a bodybuilder. And then was that whole process natty at that point or had you started to delve into supplementation? Okay. So, um, just a little backstory to this. Um, when I was 19, I wasn't training or anything then cause I was living this lifestyle that where I didn't really have any stability. Uh, sometimes staying with friends, sometimes staying here and there. And uh, actually, me and a friend, we got arrested just for some civil disturbance. But there was a lot of uh, kind of spate of street riots in in UK for various reasons. Um, so we got six months in a detention center, uh, which is like a youth jail facility. And in mm -hmm. there, they had weights. And I started doing the weights in the jail. And that's when I really realized, like, hey, this is what I need to do. And um, when, when I decided to do this, it was more or less like I'm going to 
do this as a career from from day one. So I was reading a lot and learning a lot before I even kind of went to the gym and I had mm. to get stability in my, in my life and everything. So I, I think I didn't waste a lot of time when I started training because I kind of knew what to do, where a lot of people spend time finding out. And <clears throat> I'd been training for less than a year. And then the guy that owned the gym where I was training said, we're having this competition in a couple of weeks at this hotel. And it's just like all the gyms in Birmingham. That's the town where I came from in England. Um, into gym, local competition. And we got a first timers. Uh, you look great. Why are you not going to first timers? And I, I didn't want to because I wasn't thinking about competing, but he persuaded me. So I went in the first timers competition and I had no diet. But I was already naturally lean, so I didn't really need a diet. I had no color. I didn't know what I was doing, really. Sits and poses that I saw in a magazine. And I won that competition. And the two guys, I mean, they're well-known locally. So uh, they're both on steroids. I knew that. But I was still winning the competition. And then when I decided to go, you know, to try and compete on a national level, then I knew like everybody that I'd be competing against would be using something. So that's when I decided to use it before that first competition, like uh, two or three months before that first competition, very, very small amounts. And I went and I won the competition, but it was more than that. It's like everybody kind of freaked out, even the, the judges and the officials. There was one guy there that was uh, judged at the Mr. Olympia. So, you know, uh, respected opinions and they were very impressed and they said I was probably the best heavyweight bodybuilder in the UK at that point and I've been training for like a year and a half and wow that's incredible I didn't I didn't really like I kind of was in a bit of shock I mean I knew I was good but I was in shock at the the response that I got and Two weeks later, they persuaded me to compete in a world championship. I mean, I didn't win. I got seventh place, which was kind of middle of the pack. But we talk about the best amateurs in the world. Right. So, and very little dieting know, on your side. Or... It quite early on, really, that, hey, this guy is special. This guy's got something um, and he's going to be a champion. And that was early on. So, that was really like put some wind behind my sails, so sure. to speak. Uh, and give me confidence that I could take it to another level and potentially compete as a professional on that professional circuit where the money's at, uh, prize money, um, potentially more money endorsements than prize money, and, you know, various things like appearances and, and stuff like that that we used to do was quite popular. So I'm curious then, uh, going through that process with, Comparison, uh, comparatively, the the first few competitions where you weren't really um, using much along the way of gear versus like when you got to Mister Olympia. What what do you think if you had to estimate? What do you think like your body fat percentage was in those early competitions compared to when you were Mister Olympia? Well, it would have to be an estimation because the only body fat testing kind of thing that I had available then was skin fold calipers, which yeah. is, um, they're, they're just general. They're not, right. and they don't work at like, um, very low levels. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd get down to like 3.5% body fat. Wow. 
about four weeks out for a competition. And I knew that I'd lost more by the time I got to the competition, but it just wasn't registering because they're not that accurate. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we can say probably around 3%. And I should imagine my first competitions, probably around maybe 5% or something like that. I was always able to get in really good shape. That's, I got in that's so insane. Later on, but, uh, you know, over the years, it's just getting bigger. Uh, yeah. I didn't have a problem to get into shape. Um, and do you I, think that's just like natural genetics, being able to get that lean it, on your own? Yeah, to, to some degree, it's genetics that uh, you're able to have a low body fat, but it's also um, understanding nutrition and uh, how to balance your diet so that you can reduce your body fat slowly and not burn up the muscle tissue and so on. So it's a combination of uh, the, the knowledge of nutrition and training and your genetics. So I, I think the earliest pictures you can find of me on the internet was I'm training for less than a year. I'm 21 years old. And, you know, it looked like kind of pretty much like contest condition. That's the way I used to walk around because I was lean mm-hmm. and I was all very careful with my diet as well. So, uh, I got a son and I got a daughter. They're both naturally very lean. So yep. yeah, it's somewhat genetic, but, uh, you also got to put the work in and you've got to have the knowledge of how to, you know, manipulate your body to get in that kind of condition. What would you guess you walk around with at like normally in a maintenance period? Well, now I don't know because I mean, I'm just training for health really, but I'm probably like somewhere like 12, 15%. I would yeah. guess. That's, that's the goal for the rest well, of this us. Is a, this is a picture <laughs> of me with no diet, no steroids, less than a year's training. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, yes, uh, you know. Yeah. You look like uh, an action figure. There, there is this thing in bodybuilding <laughs> while Dorian Yates didn't have great genetics. And maybe that I kind of, uh, help to create that myth because I said that there are some guys with better genetics than me mm. and if they had my drive and my knowledge they would beat me so yeah there are some guys out there probably that are a bit more gifted but um, very few I was just comparing myself to a couple of uh, pro bodybuilders and I've always worked really really hard and some guys don't work that hard and they're still you know they still look great yeah. and, but fortunately normally when things come a bit easy you kind of don't have that drive and you don't need to really seek out absolutely the best way to do things because you're kind of there anyway um so that's the advantage that i had i was genetically gifted but i was also very driven Mm. and very passionate about what i was doing and very interested in learning uh, and uh, experimenting and keeping records and all that kind of stuff i was basically my own kind of coach and my own experiment that i was that i was doing how long did it take you then to graduate from uh, those early level competitions to competing at the Mr. Olympia to winning the Mr. Olympia, especially if, uh, you know, kind of as you're saying it, you were you were kind of going about this on your own? Yeah, so um, it, it's changed a little bit now uh, how, how it works. But basically it was, um, you know, you have amateur competitions, so you would 
normally have like regional competitions. So, you know, whatever your state or your area. And then if you won one of those, you could go to the national championships as an amateur. Mm-hmm. And if you won your national championships, like in my case, I was British champion. So if you're British champion, there was one person a year from certain countries that was allowed to turn professional. So, hey, this is your best guy from whenever year. Uh, one guy from UK can turn pro as is the best guy you've got. And he's eligible then to compete in the professional competitions. Um, so that's, you know, one big step up for, for most people from amateur to pro is a big change. And then you have to enter a pro competition and come in the top three of a pro competition in order to qualify and enter the Mr. Olympia. So the idea of the Mr. Olympia was created as let's find out who is the best single professional bodybuilder in the world this year. That's Mr. Olympia. That's what it was created for. And it still has that status of being, uh, you know, number one, one yep. guy that year. I think Landon has a couple questions for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of did pretty well with uh, getting all of the, the good ones out of the way, I suppose. But when you talk about like having the drive at 21 to kind of see a bigger thing, I guess, after kind of the rougher childhood, like how do you yeah. how did you find that this was what you wanted to do and stick with it? Because I'm sure at some points there was call it internal monologues of, is it really worth it? Is what I'm doing actually that something that I want to do? And then yeah. is the success what kept you going or is it something greater? I, um, I mean, once I started, I didn't have any doubt. There was not like any questioning at all. Uh, the only question I had was at a one juncture of when I was amateur and now I'm, a, you know, I have my professional status and now I can go to compete as a professional. So, um, I'm a big fan of the sport and keen observer of everything. So, you know, I could see that if you got what it takes to be really like one of the best or the best, uh, in bodybuilding, if you look back in the history, these guys were always very obvious, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't come along and get 10th place in a pro show. And then next year win Mr. Olympia. It just doesn't happen like that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, just to use as an example, because he's very well known, uh, was outstandingly good from the get go. You know, so he went into the Mr. Universe, maybe he got second the next year, he got first and, and so on. So, um, I wanted to be kind of brutally honest with myself in that in order for me to continue what I was doing and go on a pro career would mean more sacrifice, more of what I was already doing and not just for myself. I had uh, a wife, I had a young son and, you know, we had a gym business and everything like that. So I had to justify it to myself and, not uh, also to mention the the steroid use and everything, which is you know it's just part of professional bodybuilding. Like that's it. So um, that's going to be part of it, and that's going to continue. 
for more years as, as a professional. So uh, all of this, I had to justify it to myself. So I said, um, if I cannot get in the top five in my first pro show, then obviously I don't really have a career ahead of me. Um, but fortunately, I got second in my first pro show and very positive reaction. And I got flown to California by Joe Weeder to appear in the magazines, which was at the time, that's that's it. If you get in the magazine and you, or if you get on the cover, you've really made it. And that happened on that first contest. So it was like a check point there, whether this is really for me to continue to do this and pursue it as a career. Um, the answer was yes. What uh, do you think you would point. be doing? I, I did put myself under pressure. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think you'd be doing if that didn't work out? Like, has that thought ever crossed your mind? If, if, I, if at that point, let's say I got sixth place or something, I would have, um, because I had my gym, this was, uh, you know, late 80s into 90 when I first did this competition. And gyms were fairly new things. There were not gyms uh, on every corner. There were not like corporate gyms. It was just like a few independent gyms. And it was growing the interest. So I should imagine I would have just opened more gyms and continued to do that. I was already making like, uh, you know, an okay living, more money than all my friends that I grew up with just by having one gym. So, you know, I opened two, three more. Uh, I should imagine, but it wasn't something that i had to think too hard about because the answer was there right so like <clears throat> i guess i suppose once you were kind of all in on fitness in some regard you're just going to keep at it in some way whether it would have been through pro shows or through owning yeah gyms no and... no absolutely not like hey i'm not good enough to be a professional bodybuilder so through this uh, not at all um because i do love it i love going to the gym i love pushing my body i love everything about that uh, I love the discipline. So I would have continued to do it, but just not to the extent that's necessary to be a pro bodybuilder. I probably would have kicked back and relaxed a bit more, spend more time with the family and friends and having a more relaxed lifestyle. Um, but, I, you know, I got second, so I was like, okay, let's, you know, it's all in now um, right. for a, a professional career. And I enjoyed the challenge the day-to-day -day discipline and having this this all-consuming focus and goal. Um, obviously, that don't last forever, but at that point, that's how I felt. That's super relatable to me. Um, <clears throat> I, I feel like that I've designed a life that is predicated off of like discipline and drive and uh, a, a lot of the, the virtues that you're kind of speaking to and the gym does serve itself as a very nice outlet for all of these things. Um, Absolutely. I, mean, I, I say the gym is a microcosm of life, you know, um, because in the gym you come up against challenges. And if you can push through and overcome that challenge in the gym, it's not just a physical thing. It's, it's like, yeah, it's great. You're getting stronger and it's healthier and everything. But just as important is that you're strengthening your mind and you're creating a habit of being strong and pushing through and overcoming uh, because we're creatures of habit, you know, and if you kind of have a habit of giving up when it's tough, then 
uh, that's not going to help you, right? So you get a habit of like even enjoying the challenge. Oh, let me see what I can do with this. Like, you know, overcome it. So if you can do that in the gym, you can do that in life and on all this uh, traits and, and disciplines that we learn from the gym can be applied everywhere else in your life. With with regard to that, uh, you know, you kind of speak about the habitual nature of of the gym and the process. And uh, look, I get it. I'm I'm the kind of guy who literally eats the same meal every single day because uh, it's it's what benefits uh, my lifestyle. It's what benefits what I'm training for, my aesthetics, my mind, all these things. How do you feel um, the the training has evolved over the years? And can you kind of talk a little bit about your training with Menser as opposed to what was more traditional at the time? Yeah. Um, well, the thing with Menser is like, uh, I read all his stuff uh, in the magazines and then that prompted me to read the Arthur Jones um, who was the original proponent of high intensity, short, intense training, if you like, who was the guy that made the Nautilus machines. Um, and then I kept all my records. So every workout, fortunately, every workout that I ever did from 1983 to 1997, 1998, I, I wrote down, I wrote everything down, what weights I was using, what exercises and, and so on. Um, so it was like, uh, you know, uh, over the years, I analyzed all this, uh, all this data. And I noticed if I trained uh, too frequently, if I did too much work, in, as far as volume, then things would kind of come to a halt. Okay, so let me cut back a little bit. And then I start growing again. So I know that was a uh, you know, a fine line between how much work to do and, and the recovery. And it's necessary to work at a certain level of intensity to stimulate the growth, first of all. And secondly, then you have to allow enough time for the recovery and repair process. Um, so I was always training and kind of along those lines, less sets and less frequency. Um, than other competitive bodybuilders or pro bodybuilders. So when I met Mike, I was already training pretty much like that. Um, but we trained together and he suggested cutting back even a little bit more. So I was basically doing like whatever I needed to do to warm up, like two sets, one set, you know, it depends on the exercise and where it was in the routine. And then going, doing a set to failure, and then a minute or two minutes later, do another set to failure. So like two sets on everything just to make sure it's done. So Mike said, like, maybe cut back to just doing one set. So it's a little bit further reduction in volume. Mm -hmm. And I did that, and I got another little um, period of growth. So I think I trained with Mike like three times, and we exchanged information on training. And kind of I was like a fan when I met him because – who was one of the guys I really looked up to. Um, so that was the relationship. It wasn't like a coach of mine, really. It was just somebody right. I admired, and he gave me um, a tip there. And I was happy because, it, you know, Mike was somebody I looked up to, as I said, 
And the fact that it was associated with me at that point and I was Mr. Olympia was very good for his training business and, and everything. Mm-hmm. So I think my training is, it kind of looks like a hybrid really between a conventional bodybuilding and the, the extreme, very low volume HIT. Um, and how has it evolved to now? I don't think it has really evolved to now. I just think there's more and more opinions because of the social media and so on. And um, lots of nice uh, exercises as far as like using different equipment, bands and different exercise angles and everything. Is it that useful? Not really, um, because sometimes I think the whole spirit of um, pushing into that zone is what really does the job. Like you and I could debate about one exercise or technique or something could be better, but at the end of the day, it's about the effort. And sometimes it feels like now it's got a bit sanitized and, uh, you know, everyone's filming their workouts and wearing the latest workout gear. And, uh, it's, it's a different thing. It's like a fashion where before it was smaller and people were just more there for, the the training and the essence of the the training and pushing themselves and seeing what they could do and see if they can outlift their friends and all that stuff and screaming and shouting and <laughs> dropping chalk on the floor and we we miss gym culture for sure found upon now you know yeah yeah now, now you and you make a noise and uh, drop the weights and uh, like people are looking like what's up with that that's disturbing us yeah um, which is a shame because there would be no fucking gyms without bodybuilders starting them in the first place. Right. Do you, do you then subscribe, uh, largely to the, the notion that like the core lifts, let's call it, uh, a lot of the Olympic lifts, so to speak, the power lifts. Uh, do you think that like the vast majority of your gains in volume, uh, are coming from those core lifts or do you think it's important to, uh, branch out to a lot more of the supplementary stuff where you're targeting specific muscle groups? Your uh, your core is always going to be those basic exercises, basic compound exercises, um, which engage the muscles more naturally than, let's say, isolation exercises. But um, to be a bodybuilder, as in competitive bodybuilder, you need both, right? Because you need the compound exercises um, to engage, like the mid range of the exercise, which is that's why those exercises generally known for more as a size builder. And then you need to isolate, use some isolation exercises in various areas to give them that look uh, of a bodybuilder. If you were just training for health and so on, I mean, really you only need to do the compound exercises. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a huge industry, right? Because you've got the social media, YouTube and everything now. So you've got so many people uh, trying to make money of being coaches or trainers or whatever they're trying to do. So they're always looking for something new to promote something new to make themselves stand out. Um, but you can't replace hard work, you know, don't, no matter what you do. So, and what did I do for chess? Uh, you know, Two pressing exercises and an isolation exercise normally. So it could be decline press, incline press, and flies. What did Arnold do? Bench press, incline press, flies. 
What did Lee Haney do? Bench press, incline, press, flies. Mm -hmm. What does Ronnie do? Bench press, incline, dumbbell press, flies. Like, we all do the same stuff because they're the best exercises, and now people are trying to invent new things. I have to tell you, this is, this is a little discouraging that. to me, Dorian, because <laughs> I've also been doing uh, incline bench, bench press, press and flies, and, uh, you know, I'm not... I'm not really stacking up the way that you guys do. Uh, oh, but you're probably a better I, poker player than me. That, that, that could possibly be true. I think Guapo had a question for you. Um, I do. It's sort of a two-part question. Um, I'm not sure if I saw it in an interview or I read it somewhere, but at one point I think you were training four days a week uh, for about an hour a day, and it was mostly about intensity. Uh, my question is this. Uh, social media influencers who are in the, the, the fitness space, for someone who's trying to not necessarily get into bodybuilding, but someone who is just trying to train, when you look at all this information, uh, let's say on YouTube, it seems very complicated and there's just a ton of information. My question is this, did you have it figured out in a sense that it's just about intensity and you don't have to do all these crazy exercises or is the reason that it's so complicated uh, on YouTube and all these social media influencers is because it needs to be. Otherwise, there's just no content to make. Well, I think that's the point. Yeah, people got to make content. They got to continually say something or say something different or controversial to to be relevant. Um, I won't mention this gentleman's name to embarrass him, but. Uh, he made a video about me, about criticizing my training. I got injured because my form was terrible and this was terrible and everything like that. And um, I don't know why I, I remembered the guy's face. And like six months later, he came to a coaching course of mine to, to learn from me. Yeah? And, uh, you know, he was very grateful and he realized, like, whatever he was saying was bullshit. I don't know. He just made it up to be relevant or something, but this is what happens, you know? And, um, I think you're smart if you can take something that's potentially complex and make it sound simple and explain it in a simple way, which is what I choose to do. Or I could choose to make it sound very, uh, complicated and, uh, if I wanted to have something to market and, and to continually sell, but I'd rather tell people and give them a framework that they can work with and that's going to work. And it's not complicated, really. It's, you, you know, you do enough work to stimulate growth and that's not a lot. You just need to do it intensely and then you need to recover from that. And that's a variable factor. Some people recover quicker than others. If you're using steroids, you're going to recover a lot quicker, uh, which is why, yes, people can train six days a week and still make gains because they're using a lot of steroids to recover. Well, yeah, but Dorian used steroids. Well, yeah, I did, but I'd rather have the combination of the most effective training and the steroids rather than using steroids to make up for my ineffective training because uh, otherwise I wouldn't be able to recover. So... Um, that's the case for the average person that train three or four times a week. Um, and you know, they've got a job, they've got a family and so on. They're going to need, uh, those recovery days. Very important. And I always say to people, I challenge them, if you're not gaining now, like what do you have to lose? Right. 
take yep. a week off, have a nice rest, and come back to a much shorter routine. But that last set that you do on each exercise, make sure that you push to the point of failure or beyond if you've got a training partner. And whenever you can go up in the, the weights, you go up. Because, again, it's, it's very simple. If you want to get bigger, you've got to get stronger. It goes hand in hand. Hmm. Uh, yeah, but this guy is, uh, you know, huge and is not strong. Well, I'm talking relatively, though. You know, like, as an individual, if you can curl 30 pounds and you, you, you can continue to do that, I don't care how you do it, you're not going to grow. You need to get to 35 and 40 and so on. So right. uh, if you're not getting stronger, you're not progressing. So don't kid yourself that, you, you know, uh, some kind of new exercise is going to do something for you because your body doesn't know what exercise it's doing. It just knows how hard it's working. And if it's under an extreme amount of stress that it can't tolerate, it will try to compensate and make itself a bit stronger for the next time. That's, you know, a fairly simple breakdown of what's going on. Yeah. I think that's, that's, uh, that kind of hits home, but it's also, <clears throat> I recognize a bit of a challenge. Like personally, I'm, I, I would say I'm borderline addicted to working out. It's difficult for me you to know, take. This is what I hear a lot. People are going to the gym because they're bored and they want to go to the gym and yeah. they enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's semi-social. Hey, if that's what you want, it's cool, but if you really want to go to get the best gains, then you don't need to be going too often. Mm -hmm. And if you're really pushing, you won't want to go, man. <laughs> you won't feel like going that next day because you'll be all beat up and sore. And, right. And that's what you should feel like. If you don't like, listen, if, you, if you're like, hey, I'm happy with my physique. I'm happy with everything. I just want to go to gym and train and I feel good and it makes me feel good mentally. And yeah, it's all good. Knock yourself out. Like, but if you want to gain, you want to get bigger and stronger, then you've got to really push it and you've got to take time off to recover from it. So I want to talk a little bit about longevity, uh, and, and the rest and recovery and things of that nature. Um, uh, I guess I brought up that like, I, I like to train daily, uh, maybe not necessarily with weights, but you know, uh, you, you figure That's out. Okay, man. You, you could do like uh, one day weights and another day a little cardio or Pilates yeah. or yoga or something of a more restorative nature. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yes. How how do um? Well, I guess especially now that you're out of now that you're like post bodybuilding, how do you see the next twenty years or so moving forward for you? I assume that you're still planning on training. Uh, what do you do for longevity? Uh, are you into like things like HGH, peptides, um, things of that nature? Because I know that once I got into my late 30s, early 40s, this was the route that I started to examine. Um, you know, the body just starts to decline, but a lot of it's because we ignore it. Well, you know, I, um, I had some injuries from my bodybuilding career and years and years of heavy weights. Uh, maybe it has some, you know, uh, negative effects on your posture and the way you stand and things like that. Normally you've got rounded shoulders because the, the pex is bringing the shoulders round and pinches on the front and all these things. And uh, actually it was, <clears throat> I had a psychedelic experience and I was shown all that during the experience and I was, came out and I said, I got to, 
try some yoga. I didn't really know anything about yoga except it's something that women do and I wouldn't, wouldn't normally be that interested in it. Um, but yeah, I took up yoga and breath work and everything like that. Um, so now I combine, like I'll do some resistance weight work. It's not that heavy because of injuries and stuff like that. But the, the purpose of that is basically to maintain my muscle mass as I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. So I do in the gym twice a week with weights. One one day upper body, one day lower body. Normally that's it. Um, I do yoga. <clears throat> I also do Pilates. So I might do one yoga and, and one Pilates a week. And I do um, some high-intensity interval cardio so it's like one minute easy. I use an air bike because it engages the most muscles. So I do like one minute easy and 20 seconds, absolutely all out. And I do like four circuits of that. So mm. it's, it's probably like seven or eight minutes total. I do that twice a week. Um, and I do like a bike ride and a walk. So just general activities. So a nice combination of everything as far as the exercise goes. Um and uh, yes, I'm on TRT, and only recently um, started using a little uh, growth hormone. Okay, because I had a few joint issues, um, and I had peptide treatment in Colombia, mainly for my right hip, which is arthritic and worn from all the heavy leg presses and squats and everything, um, and yeah, the peptides helped a bit, but it didn't really like cure it totally so uh i'm managing it it's not that bad but it's a high possibility that i'll need to have that joint replaced in the future do you Um, do you feel uh fortunate to not have gone the way of like ronnie coleman and uh do you like have any inside information i don't have more injuries um, I mean, because I injured this hip when I was very young, like squatting, mm-hmm. uh, I damaged it a bit. So, it, you know, I guess I was lucky that my whole career, it didn't uh, give me any trouble at all. It's only like re- over the last few years, I've become aware of it. Um, but I feel great. I had um, a whole battery of um, tests done in Brazil. My wife's from Brazil, so went to a sports clinic there and they did all the VO2 max and heart rate recovery on the stress and blood pressure and da, da, da. And, uh, I was in the very, like 95% percentile and, uh, the biological age score was like 35. That's and they, amazing. They, were impressed. they said they hadn't had a bodybuilder that went in there that had that performance results, mm-hmm. even guys that were 25, 30 years old. So, um, yeah, that's that's the proof, and what I'm doing is correct. Moderate amount of high intensity cardio, a little bit of weights, and the other stuff is more my mobility. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of the regime that I'm on. I mean, I do other stuff like I do breathing work, I do um, sauna and ice meditation uh, and various supplements and so on. So yeah, I definitely uh, take my health seriously like all around physical and mental health just um trying to be the best uh 
version of myself and keep learning and keep evolving. That's that's where I'm at. But I feel great, man. Like you know, I'm coming up to sixty-two, and uh, yeah, I feel I feel great. I don't feel like uh, sixty-two. I'm not sure what you're supposed to feel like. But <laughs> well, when you got the biological like, age of like, being I in your thirties, like should arrest me or something, man. You know? Yeah, <laughs> oh, man, I'm feeling too good like this. Uh, I know we got to get you out of here, but I want to get your take on something that um, kind of took our poker world by storm. A very large wager was made uh, a little less than a year ago. Uh, there was a poker player in the industry who was quite overweight. He was about 309 pounds, I believe, at 5'11". Uh, yeah. No athletic background, no real training or anything along those lines. I think he came in at like 45% body fat when the bet was made. He got laid 10 to 1 on 100,000. So um, his 100,000 to win a million. If in one year's time, he could get down to 17% body fat. And there were no rules against using any sort of gear or supplementation, things of that nature. I'm curious to hear your take as far as what your process would be if you were coaching someone like that. And then I'm interested in hearing what you think the likelihood is. Come and see me, man. Give me thirty percent. I'll get him. I'll yeah. get him well, six the times to, he's he's down to his final sixteen weeks, and he's twenty five percent body fat right now. So, uh, so this he is needs to get down to what percent? Down to seventeen. So this is what he's looking 17, at. So he's got eight yeah. percent to lose on on what's his body weight. He's about two hundred twenty five pounds. At five eleven. So he yeah. got like uh, fifteen, sixteen pounds to lose. In how long? Uh, sixteen weeks. He's in the final push. Fucking easy, man. Yeah, that's what I told him. Yeah, Yeah. whoever's bet against that's losing. Okay. Uh, what would your what would your advice be to him? Time to call me, man. But that's that's easy. Piece of piss, as we say in England. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking, that's a pound a week, man. That's that's no brainer. How how would you uh, advise him to go about this? Because obviously he can't just lose muscle in the process of this, right? Like he still needs to be able to maintain whatever it is that he's built. Um. Well, but he is uh, able to use gear. Uh, weight training, high protein diet, mm-hmm. uh, fairly low carbs, and it needs to be in a, a deficit. In other words, you know, you're burning more than you're taking in. Right. And, and, and slowly. So, like a pound a week, you can do that from body fat stores if you get it right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what his on, what his hormonal status is and everything. That would make a big difference. Right. Uh, as far as retaining muscle mass, if your testosterone is in a good place, then you're much less likely to lose muscle mass as you go down. Yeah, that was why I was curious of your take from one year out, like how do you approach this? Because personally, from my perspective, uh, I said that I wouldn't have focused so much on losing fat out of the gate because he was you know eating at a big he's basically been eating a deficit for almost a year which i think is difficult to maintain uh he came out of the gate doing like a lot of cardio shed a lot of weight quickly like 30 40 pounds in maybe the first month or so but uh given the fact that he's able to use gear if i were in that state i think i would have just focused on putting on lean muscle mass right out of the gate as much as humanly possible and then whenever we got to this point of the final 16 week push just focusing on a cut. I mean, it depends how mobile it was when it started. That's right? true. You know? Yeah. Sometimes somebody in that condition, they can't go straight in to, to doing what you got to be careful with what you're doing, but absolutely stimulating the muscle mass is going to keep the, the is going to elevate the metabolism. I tell people like, you know, muscle mass is like, uh, 
your the engine in your car, right? The more muscle mass you're carrying, the more energy it requires just ticking over, just sitting there. Mm-hmm. You know, so the more muscle mass is is better to build muscle mass uh, and you know increase your metabolic rate than just trying to starve it off. And also, you know, great is doing this and it's going to win a bet and everything. That's cool, but be wanting to like keep that weight off and keep healthy as well. Right. That's, a, that's another thing. Yeah. Do you think that somebody like who goes through this sort of massive transformation over the years time, do you think that the likelihood of bounce back is really high or is this maintainable? There's a, there's a lot of factors there. I mean, not just physical or psychological, like, you know, I don't know about his life and his lifestyle and all this stuff. And if his only motivation to do this is just to win some money. And when that's gone, maybe it's not there. So it's an individual uh, motivation, but he got that all that weight off, and if he really wants to do it and is disciplined, yes, he could keep it off. Yeah, I, I'm I'm on that side as well. I, I think like there'll be some bounce back. You know, maybe he ends up walking at like 220 for the rest of his life, but that's a big change from 305, 310, what or 310, whatever. Yeah, um, you know, when I'm helping somebody lose weight or when I was doing it myself, I wouldn't be on a deficit all the time. Mm-hmm. So maybe like five or six days a week you're in a deficit and on another day you're a little bit over or you're on maintenance. Yeah. That way you're not like, you know, going into, your body's like shutting down into starvation zone. And it's right. good as well mentally you have a little release once a week or something. Yeah, I, I'm currently cutting. That's that's very close to my process, but that's also why I'm going to end up at like, you know, 14 or 15% instead of three or four or whatever the hell you were able to get down to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, this is... Uh, this is an extreme for a for a competition. It's not right. necessarily healthy uh, or something that even a professional could maintain for very long. Yeah, it's an extreme sport for a competition. It's not uh, practical. And I have a theory uh, that people have a, like a set point. Mm-hmm. You know, genetically, yeah, you have a kind of a set point where your your body is comfortable, right? And maybe mine is a bit lower than the average uh, and. Like if you're trying to force yourself, you know, below your kind of natural level, if that makes sense, then uh, that's a losing game, you know? Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. I think at some point... A healthy level of body fat that you can maintain uh, without depriving yourself, uh, I think that's a good goal. Unless you want to compete, then that's a whole different story, right? Yeah, I think we all have a homeostasis uh, point, but you know, you want to, at least from my vantage point, I think you want to keep challenging it. You know, uh, it is malleable. So maybe naturally you're supposed to rest at 20%, but the more that you push, the more athletic you become, maybe that number gets down to like 16 or something along those lines, which I think is uh, a a good process to try to push yourself through in order to maintain a healthy, but you know, there's a good healthy range without having to deprive yourself or, or performance negatively. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, I know you have to get out of here. I really yeah, appreciate I'm gonna go this. To the airport and uh, pick up my daughter. So I'm gonna gonna fly. But uh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been interesting. Thanks for coming, Doran. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Really appreciate you. All right. Enjoy the rest of your guys day, and uh, I'll speak to you soon, Craig. Yeah? Okay. Have a good day, man. Talk cool, to you soon. Uh, See you, Doran. Ciao. 
All right. Well, I got to ask him about half as much as I wanted to, so that yeah. was good. You That's, could have talked to him for three hours. Oh, uh, easily, easily. I mean, we didn't even get into like the Mr. Olympia stuff, which uh, I would love to hear his thoughts based off of, you know, the time that he competed. Uh, I think like he basically transitioned into the Ronnie Coleman era. Like yeah. uh, he may have retired right before Ronnie won it, exactly. I believe. Uh, and then from there into the Jay Cutler area, now more modern times. But he only retired because of the injuries. He could have won many more. Sure. He wasn't challenging Arnold anymore. When he tore his bicep or his pec, he chose to just, well, I think I've done what I wanted to do. Yeah. And just moved on to, which we didn't get into, more longevity. He's very much into spy, body, mind, spirit. He's worked with Dr. Joe Dispenza. Those kinds of guys, Wim Hof, he has him on his podcast. He didn't mention his podcast, which just came out with Tom Platts. He's very much into personal transformation and being the best version of Dorian that he could be. Mm -hmm. he did, he's, like I mentioned to you, he's done ayahuasca retreats. That's what he meant by the experience he had. He saw all these visions. Yeah. What am I going to do with my longevity in my life now? Yeah. Um, what is the center focus of this podcast? Uh, what's the name of it so we can point people in the right direction? Uh, the Shadow Talk. Okay. Shadow Talk, if you guys are more interested There's, in hearing more. That's his first one with Tom Platts right there. Tom was known Tom for his gigantic legend. legs, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny how uh, different guys in the industry are kind of just like known for uh, different aspects of, of what they're able to develop. Like for Dorian, it was just sheer size and volume. Exactly. Guy like Platts, it was, uh, it was his legs. For me, it's going to be my pants. Your pants. It, it is. <laughs> Clearly leading the way. Unfortunately, Landon, it is the pants. When Tom would come into the gym in my early days at Gold's Venice, and he would go to the squat rack. The place would get quiet. The barbarians, I don't know if you know what bar barbarian brothers were in there. They would scream and fight and scream when they lifted. But everybody would be silent and walk to the uh, squat rack. And you'd see him just squatting all the way down to his butt almost on the floor. Yeah. And coming up. He was a fairly short dude, though. Mm -hmm. So it was just amazing to watch Tom's mental discipline to be able to do that. Yeah. Ask the grass squats are no for joke. Sure, for sure. <laughs> um, this is uh the, the this is gonna be it's funny because this is gonna be probably the biggest guest that we ever have on as far as like who he is to the rest of the world and probably one of our least Smallest viewed views, yeah <laughs> which is really unfortunate but I don't care because like to me this stuff is uh is where my additional interests lie outside of poker and I think that the crossover is so massive like I don't think people understand what it takes to be an extreme athlete like this and to put yourself in a position where you know, he kind of glossed over it, but the the decision that steroids are just going to become a part of your life and you're going to do it like uh, at, at, at some level of efficacy where you're keeping the future in mind, but you're also trying to maximize whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish now. That's that's not a difficult thing to just, uh, you know, rationalize away. And I think we see a lot of it now with guys like, you know, the mutant who's just a social media star that's willing to eat ice cream for every meal and just, you know, Sam Salak, that dude, what's his name? Sam oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm getting Somebody to it. Well, you're thinking about Sam, right? Yeah. yeah I'm thinking about Sam, but the mutant yeah. also is like, yeah, you he's know, getting lucky charms and getting big, but yeah, absolutely. Right. but the guys, um, Lee priest, another body, he's like, lay off the dude. I ate that shit too. Mm -hmm. Back in the day. We yeah. just, he's trying to get calories in cause he's just, crazy training yeah we forget about it. you know the 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 rumors of michael phelps eating ten thousand calories like i don't know how accurate the ten thousand number was but i hung out with phelps in vegas before i was in his suite right. and i have to tell you i saw a smorgasbord 
of food that i mean we're talking like a chef's table right. of just like food from corner to corner and it was the highest calorie lowest nutrition stuff that you could get your hands on you know it was ding-dongs it was chips it was it was all the trash that you could imagine and you're looking at this guy as like a marvel he's just like the most extreme athlete you've ever come in contact with one of the most decorated olympians of all time and then you're looking at what he's consuming and it's like bro you have to be like some sort of rocket ship to just be able to fuel your body with this and have it function well. Because if I did that, there's no way. But it's like, well, of course not. Because you're not expending that level of energy. Exactly. You know, I'll never do anything in my life that will expend 10,000 calories. I wanted to find out and see where the transition was in Dorian's mental discipline and how it translates over to poker. Mm -hmm. You understand? Yeah. So how he can focus and concentrate and create. Because uh, when I came into the game, uh, back 18 years ago, watching these players, a lot of people were overweight. Or they, right. It's a sedentary lifestyle, right? Yeah. And then people like Brian Towns and Patrick and Tonius and those kind of guys started working out. Mm -hmm. And we saw these guys that were really fit at the table because they realized the mental and the physical discipline was very important to bring to the game. I think there's always been an under undercurrent of athletes who gravitate towards the game just through sheer competition. Guys right. like myself and Jason uh, Kuhn who were like you know sure. collegiate athletes, this filled a void for us. Uh, especially for like Jason who got injured and wasn't able to finish his career or someone like me who had like dreams of grandeur that, you know, someone pop, uh, popped the bubble at some point. Right. This was a really nice cushion to fall into. And uh, we, we just carried that mindset through from top to bottom. And it's like maybe it took a little longer for us to rise uh, in the actual industry itself while there were a lot of kids who were just like online gaming nerds that, you know, were fat, smoking weed, eating Doritos, and winning right. hundreds of thousands uh, in the early 2000s, uh, they might have kind of like risen fast. But if you look around now, that that market's matured, and we're all in our 30s or early 40s now, you see a lot more of the health-driven, the, the mental focus, uh, or like leading with those sort of assets and attributes. Um, and I think that it's not surprising to me. It's just unsustainable. Um, to be able to live in this fast-paced, intense, uh, highly variant lifestyle with you know reckless abandonment, your your mind will just rot. There's just really no way around it. Uh, and I do find it fascinating to see the the, the parallels, but also uh, the divergence because on one hand, the amount of mental fortitude that it takes to put a house on your back and squat it. And just be willing to do that over you know what i mean like it uh, i'm i'm being a little hyperbolic but like it's not that much of an exaggeration like there are guys out there squatting a half ton or, or damn near it you know what i mean so like this is we're talking a small vehicle right. uh when you put it into to real world perspective the mental fortitude that it takes to do that is is next level and you look at guys like goggins uh not a bodybuilder but also just like Amazing. his his mind is so callous that he's able to just do all these things however it is just a physical endeavor, right? It is a lean into the suck and just power through it and let your body do what it's capable of doing, uh, which is a very different mindset, I think, than taking on a barrage of variants in a game where everything is so cloudy. You can't see any of the actual answers, you know? And then the, the, the mindset on top of that is like, well, uh, embrace it. You know, embrace this sort of suck. Don't let your emotions get in the way of rationality. Don't let you, um, d don't 
don't fall worse than your training, you know, like regress to your training, not to your impulses. That's so much more difficult and such a different sort of programming, I think. I want to ask you, so as far as how it relates, of how you, how your diet affects your daily playing at the table. So, cause real quick, mm-hmm. I want to let people know I'm doing a new show called The Interview uh, with Poker Org. We did Phil Hellmuth. Oh, we all know uh, about we know, this I know we, it, it sort of fired off, but Phil and I talked for a second about him doing a keto diet, right? Mm-hmm. And then he said, well, then the next year I ate a lot of candy and I want a bracelet. That's so so I really can't, you know, <laughs> quantify that because it's really, that, uh, I'm curious. You know what? Honestly, <laughs> that is on par with his mask comment about Ike, right. to be quite frank, because it's just anecdotal. Uh, everything that he's saying in both of those frameworks, it's just anecdote, right? It's like, oh, well, he won the most he's ever won in his career and he had a mask on. Therefore, the mask must help. I want a bracelet when I ate candy. Therefore, you know, I mean, it's like baseball superstition. I didn't wash my socks for a week because I'm hitting 600. No, I brought it up. I said, I think Ike was doing okay before the mask came He's on. Kind of doing okay. <laughs> yeah. But as far as for you, how does have you gone in like eating shit one day and, and sitting down and playing and realizing how it affected your play and your mental state or staying kind of balanced and going, well, this is feel, feels good and I mm-hmm. feel more clear when I play, make better decisions? I would say that there are two extremes under which I perform the best and the absolute worst. Yeah. Um, the one extreme that I don't really partake in very often any longer um but i did find that it was incredibly helpful for clarity and just potency of my decision making ability was ketosis uh so when i was on a ketogenic diet and i only do it when i'm in a maintenance phase so whenever i've gotten down to a point where i'm happy with my build i'm happy with the amount of muscle that i'm carrying the weight that i'm at um i'll i'll go into a maintenance phase and i'll increase my fat uh, to the point of being able to get into ketosis. The problem with that is that you're dropping a lot of your protein and your physical energy. It gets zapped. Definitely. So it's very difficult to maintain. I would only do it during the World Series. But now that I'm not really playing MTTs any longer and I don't have the 16-hour days, exactly. it's a lot less incentivized for me because I do still have time to train. I do still have time to get out and be active and enjoy the summer and, and things of that nature. So I, I'd prefer to be in a maintenance uh caloric consumption with a higher protein and lower fat so uh i will say though that i I have incredible results off of that um when i travel uh specifically flying i always fast it it helps you fade um jet lag really well and uh i've played very few high rollers in my day but one of them that i played was me traveling from here to the bahamas to play the party poker millions which, i wish you would have told me that last month by the way uh i think i may have but really no <laughs> oh, one fucking man. listens to I'm me i'm still hurting uh i didn't eat for like the first i i think i when i went to montreal last week uh i i left fasted at like eight in the morning uh got there at like i don't know 5 p.m or whatever and didn't end up eating until dinner time the next day so it was like you're just drinking water uh, water, um, and I'll break the fast with bone broth, uh, and I'll have some caffeine, but, um, what's I do. The th- what's the theory behind that as far as jet lag? Uh, I think that it's just that you don't allow with, with most foods, there's some level of inflammation. Uh, so I think that like you just are specifically fasting is an activity that reduces inflammation in and of itself. Uh, so I think like that stuff combined, um, helps reduce whatever causes jet lag it's not really clear what causes jet lag um and then also if you're fasting you're incentivized to just like sleep more at normal times um 
So yeah, like on the extreme side of ketosis, I I've, I noticed that like my decision making process is really great, but my energy gets zapped, and it's not a trade off I'm willing to make. The other extreme side is if like I binge and eat shit, so I can't go to like a birthday party or a celebration of some sort, consume 200 grams of sugar, and expect to perform well that day or even the next. For sure. The older I get, the longer it takes to recover from those days. Like it's it's equivalent to binge drinking for me. Um, and I don't know what it feels like to be drunk or hungover, but I can tell you what my body feels like the day after consuming like an ass ton of sugar. And it's just like, I have a headache. I'm sluggish. Everything's foggy. I don't want to do anything. Uh, honestly, the only thing that becomes, uh, easy to even gravitate towards is training. And it's because I'm regressing to, uh, you know, my, my, my previous training. Like it's, it's the thing that I can default I can be in a shitty state and still show up to the gym. I can be in a shitty state and still sit in a sauna, right? But I can't sit at a table and make good decisions. So where I try to live is just everywhere in between. And it doesn't really matter if I'm eating a whole foods diet where I'm at a deficit, uh, or I'm eating a high protein diet where I'm at maintenance, or I'm eating a high protein diet where I'm bulking. It doesn't matter where I'm at in that spectrum. All of it seems to be fine, uh, I can be everything from fasted to full and, you know, I don't really seem to suffer too much at the table, but it's when I fall into those two extremes that I notice that I either level way up or way down. What's the longest you've ever fasted for? Uh, I did a 96 hour fast, man, this must've been 2018 when keto first became right. like a thing. I think that was the first way that I got into ketosis. So I started to tell the story about the party poker millions, but, uh, I left here uh on a more like some morning got to the bahamas in the night and played a 20 a three-day 25k and didn't eat until i busted so it was like almost a four-day fast all water during that time just water just water and i was taking caffeine pills that's why i wanted to show people uh, i did a 10-day fast once there's a guy wow. dan milman wrote an amazing book the way of the peaceful warrior i've given it away to 30 40 people and they've sent me messages it changed my life it's mm -hmm. a cool book so i did 10 days i wanted to see what it would do he because he talks about it there what I found out was how powerful water was mm -hmm. because it's like, it's an energy drink. I would go, if I went into a movie to see a movie, I had to take water because I'd start to fade. I drank a few sips of water and I'm back up like drinking a monster drink. Yeah. So I think we underestimate the power of, of really clean water. Yeah, I, th I think that's accurate. Uh, driving long distances when you get that highway hypnosis, yeah. being able to take a sip of anything Changes. really, really does change your uh, kind of like the 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 tunnel effect that, that can take place and the, the fatigue. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long. Is there anything else that, that you want to chat about? No, it's all good. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for uh, bringing my friend Dorian. He's an amazing person. Watch the Joe Rogan interview. It's four hours. It's really I, cool. I'm in. I, I really enjoyed Dorian. Uh, he seems like a oh, really bullshit. mindful guy, which I appreciate more than anything else uh, outside of the athletics. But obviously, uh, I really appreciate the athletics. Sure. Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for uh, setting this all up. Thanks for coming in the studio My pleasure. and being a part of this. Um, that's going to do it for us today, guys. We're going to be back tomorrow, 11 a.m. again. Uh, we're going to be joined by Nikki and possibly Melissa. I'm not sure if we're rearranging or not, but we'll be back. We'll see you guys all then. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and uh, tell a friend.